What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Daniel Pink is the author of six provocative books including his newest When The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing which spent 4 months on the New York Times bestseller list and was named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, iBooks, Goodreads and several more outlets His other books include the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive, and To Sell is Human. On this episode, Sean and Dan dive deep on motivation, how to structure your day to be the most productive, and how Dan generates new ideas. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I'm wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. Daniel, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I am great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this is this is one I'm very much looking forward to. I know the listeners are as well, but I need to thank you first. So this morning, there I am trying to get my morning workout in, not feeling too motivated. And then I think mm. some of the research I did for this interview, and all I could think about was the motivational interviewing that you've discussed in the past. Can you talk about that technique? Sure. That's a technique actually from the therapeutic literature. I got it from a fellow named uh, Michael Pantalon, who's a doctor at uh, Yale Medical School. And it's essentially this, that when you're having a difficult time motivating someone else or motivating yourself or re- resisting doing something that's difficult to do, uh, you can ask yourself what seem to be two irrational questions. And so um, so what you can do is, let's say that let's say that you were talking to me 
about running and you said, oh man, Dan, I'm just, you know, it's, it's seven 30 in the morning. I'm just not into it. I really want to bail. I don't want to do this. Um, and I said, okay, that's, that's cool. That's cool. Let me ask you just a couple of questions. So first, Sean, on, on a scale of one to 10, how ready are you to, um, run right now? And you might say, oh God, I feel like crap. I'm, I'm a, I'm a two. And now ordinarily when motivate people, we hear a response like that. We're like, what are you talking about a two? You should be, you know? And uh, I say, okay, that's cool. Uh, tell me why you're not a one. And that always surprises people, that follow-up question, okay? Tell me, or, or, or t- tell me why you didn't pick a lower number. And that always surprises people because they're, they're, they're footing, they lose their footing a little bit. And, and they say, well, why am I, well, why, why are you two not a one? Um, well, Dan, you know, I've run before, so I know I can do this. And it's probably, I always feel better after I run and that mood boost lasts for a while. And, uh, you know, I can't do it tomorrow because I'm traveling. And what, what's happening there is that you're using this technique, this, this, this interrogative form to help people surface their own intrinsic reasons for doing something. And one of the things we know about motivation is that when people have their own reasons for doing something, they're more likely to do it rather than if they're adopting someone else's reasons. And so uh, this technique, you know, you can't use it all the time, but it's really, it's really effective. So you ask somebody who's resisting on a scale of zero to 10, how one to 10, how ready are you to do this thing? And when they say, when they inevitably give you a low number, instead of being disappointed by that or excoriating them for their low motivation, you say, okay, that's cool. Why didn't you pick a lower number? And that can help them summon their own autonomous, intrinsically motivated reasons for doing something. Yeah, that was the internal dialogue. I selected a three this morning and it wasn't a two or a one because I would have felt better after working out. So I, I was actually laughing, thinking about your research yeah. and, and how it impacted me. But, but yeah. to- Today is another interesting day. So here we are. This interview is taking place Monday, April 1st. So it would be difficult not to discuss fresh start days. What are they? Uh, Well, fresh start dates are a phenomenon that was identified by uh, some researchers at the University of Pennsylvania, Katie Milkman, Heng Chen Dai, and Jason Reese. And what they found was something really, really interesting, that, um, that all dates, in terms of behavior change, all dates are not created equal. Uh, and as we think about our lives, there are certain dates that, that operate as what they call, what social psychologists call temporal landmarks, temporal landmarks. And those are landmarks, those are dates that stand out in time the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. And what physical landmarks in space allow you to do, let's say you're trying to drive somewhere, get somewhere, you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm looking for this landmark and I can see it, I pay attention to it, I slow down, I reassess, I reorient. And certain dates have that same kind of effect with a knock-on effect where there are certain dates of the year these researchers have found that, you know, have our, get ourselves to reorient, but also have this weird, get us to engage in this really peculiar form of mental accounting where we open up essentially a fresh ledger on ourselves, the way a business would open up a fresh ledger at the beginning of a quarter, at the beginning of um, a new fiscal year. And so, as I said, so put those things together, it's certain dates that we psychologically feel like give us a fresh start. Um, So uh, uh, first of the month, first of the year, Mondays, the day after our birthday, the day after all the, you know, kind of personal milestones. And so, you know, a Monday, the first of the month is a really potent temporal landmark, despite it's being April Fool's Day. 
um, because it gives us it, we essentially trick ourselves into thinking that hey, old me never exercised, but new me were born on this temporal landmark will be a fiend about uh, aerobic health. So, uh, and, and, and what, what this tells us and is that if we want to change our behavior, again, it's not as if every date is the same for us mentally, psychologically. And because there are certain dates when we're more likely to enact that behavior change, and when we're more likely to enact that behavior change, we're more likely to sustain it. So if you want to start a new diet or a new workout regime, new productivity plan, you're better off doing it, you know, on the first of a month rather than on the 13th of a month or on a Monday rather than on a Wednesday or on the day after your wedding anniversary rather than three days before your wedding anniversary. Yeah. So it sounds like if, if you're a business leader, you've got a group you're trying to motivate it, it would make the most sense to time new initiatives around days like this, correct? Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think that like any of this research, uh, you know, it gives you it gives you a a lockdown. It's a, it's not always a slam dunk. It's not guaranteed, but it improves your it improves your probability uh, because again, uh, one of the things that we know is that the temporal factors matter a lot more than we realize in how we make our way through our lives. And so, I think what we're all looking for is are evidence based ways to work a little smarter, live a little bit better. And I think this fresh start effect can give us clues about how to do that. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, this framework, it's what you uncovered in your most recent book, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. So what is the overall idea around this book and how did this book come to be for you? Well, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, so it, it came to be largely because I was frustrated. Uh, I was making all kinds of timing decisions in my own life, everything from, you know, like, like as you were talking about before, you know, when should I exercise? Um, uh, when should I do my most important work? Uh, when should I start a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And I was making those decisions in a pretty sloppy way. Uh, that frustrated me. So I started looking around just out of curiosity, you know, is there any research on this topic? And it turned out there was a huge amount of research on this topic of, of timing. The trouble is, is that it was spread across, you know, 15, 20, 25, sometimes different disciplines. Um, none of whom were talking to each other, but all of whom were asking very similar questions. And so I spent literally two years trying to hack through this research uh, to try to make sense of it. And so, so, so that's how I got into studying this topic. And I guess the meta takeaway from all of it is that uh, timing is much more of a science than an art, even though we make most of our timing decisions in our personal lives, in our professional lives, wherever. We make most of our timing decisions based on intuition. We make them based on guesswork. We make them based on default settings. That's the wrong way to do it. And we should be making our timing decisions based on evidence, based on science. And if you understand the science, I think you can harness it to make systematically smarter decisions uh, in many, many, many aspects of your life. Yeah, I'm interested. When you first start uncovering some of these problems you're facing, what inspires you enough to devote, I'm assuming, a couple of years of your life to writing this book? Um, the most important criterion in that is what am I interested in? I mean, writing a book is torture. It's horrible. I don't recommend it to anybody. It's really, really hard if you want to do it well. It's, it, you know, it, it takes a huge amount of time, and most of the amount of time is spent doing difficult things that are often frustrating and not immediately rewarding. 
And so, and so if you're going to torture yourself that way, you have to do it in a, an area where that you're genuinely interested in. The other, the other thing is like books live, you know, and it is a good thing. Like a, like a, a, a decent book will live for years and years and years and years and years. And so you, one can end up talking about it for a very long time, getting questions about it for a very long time. And if you're just not into it, it's, it's horrible. And so for me, the most important criterion in all of that is, is this something that I am myself really curious about and that I really care about and that I'm really interested in? And the truth of the matter is that most topics don't satisfy that. So there are plenty of things where I thought to myself, hey, this would make a good book, but there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to write it because it would drive me nuts after two or three months. So that's the most important criterion. And then the other one is, you know, is there something valuable to say that hasn't been said? And I really felt that was the case for this book about timing. There were, I may say it in the book itself, there are gazillions of these how-to, very, very few, almost none, uh, when-to books. And, um, and, and I felt that this research just hadn't been uh, collected and synthesized and explained at all, let alone in a, in a way that was coherent and simple and that could give readers things to do to make their lives better. Yeah, you you mentioned you have to be interested first and foremost, and I'm almost viewing yeah. my interest level in this book like a like a snowball. The more I read, the more interested I oh, became. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. no, it, it was very very interesting. Just kind of hearing about all the different things that shape your day essentially, and how you become more productive. So I would love for you to just give the the listeners more of an outline and expand upon the different cycles of the day. Yeah, well, so so at the heart of timing, and it, timing is is multifaceted. So there is timing in the in in uh, your episodic timing, where if we look about our lives, look at our lives, or we live our lives in a series of episodes. Uh, you know, a career is an episode, a job is an episode, a project is an episode, relationships can be an episodes, and and episodes typically are structured so that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And beginnings have one effect on our behavior, usually invisible, but like the fresh start effect we were talking about before. Midpoints can have another effect on our behavior. Uh, sometimes they drag us down, other times they fire us up. And endings, fascinating stuff on endings. Endings can have a whole different effect on our behavior. Uh, there's research on how groups synchronize in time, how also on the way with the way we think about time affects our behavior. But um, I really think that at the white hot center of all of this is the research, as you suggest, on the day. And the reason the day is so important is that we can't do anything about it. So if you look at certain units of time, um, there's nothing that says an hour has to be 60 minutes. We could have said an hour has is 40 minutes. Uh, we could have said a minute is not 60 seconds, but a minute is 12 seconds. We could have said a second lasts longer than it really, those are all, uh, or think about a week, you know, who says a week is seven days? That's just completely made up. So a lot of these units of time are not natural in any way, but are essentially things that human beings have invented, confected to bring a little order to chaos. However, a day is very different from that because we can't do anything about a day, right? Because we're on a planet. And that planet is turning, you know? And so, and so at some level, it's, I think it's arguably the most important unit of time. And it's important doubly so because 
the, there's a hidden pattern of the day that has a profound effect on how we feel and how we perform. Um, and um, um, in particular, I guess the, the big idea from that line of research is this. And, and for me, it was it's transformative in the way that I think about my own work. The big idea from this body of research on how mood and performance change over the course of a day is this. Our brain power, our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of the day. They change. Our brain power, our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day. They can change in, they do change in somewhat predictable ways, fairly predictable ways. They often change in pretty significant and large ways. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the underlying premise in a lot of the way we do work, in a lot of the way we schedule work, a lot of the ways that offices and businesses and workplaces are organized, presumes that our level of cognitive ability is remains the same over the course of a day. It doesn't. And so once you once you realize that you're you're smarter, uh, dumber. Um, stronger mentally, weaker mentally at different times of day, it auto affect on how it auto affect how you do things. And the good news in all of this, even though the research is complex and, and multi multi multidisciplinary, that if you wrestle it to the ground, you can actually make sense of it. In all of your research, is there a society, a workforce, anyone who's really executing on making their citizens or employees maximize their certain timings of the day? That's a great question. I don't think there is a, a single place. There are there are a few. There's a there's a city in Germany actually that um, uh, decided to kind of be a pioneer in letting people work as much in accordance with what's a, with their own chronotype. A chronotype is basically, you know, a scientific way of saying: Are you a morning person or an evening person? Do you naturally wake up late and go to sleep late? Are you an owl? Do you naturally wake up early and go to sleep early? Are you a lark? Or are you somewhere in between? So there's one city that made a kind of experiment of that. But in general, I think that most organizations, whether they are schools, whether they are businesses, uh, and certainly most societies, really don't factor that into account. We're laboring under this false idea that, you know, in many ways, at all times of day are more or less the same, when in fact they are distinctly, distinctly not. And there is a Mount, not even not not even a mountain of evidence. There is a mountain range of evidence <laughs> showing that um, you know that our cognitive abilities uh, change over you know as the day goes on. What type of chronotype are you? I am of someone. I am in the middle. Um, so so here's a, let's look at the distribution of things here. What we have is we have about fifteen percent of the population are very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of the population are very strong evening people. And then about two-thirds of us are in the middle, even though the people in the middle tend to lean. It's not evenly distributed in the middle. There's still a lean toward in the middle toward larks. And so I'm actually a, a very common chronotype in that I'm a kind of a mild uh, – I'm not a strong lark. I'm sort of a moderate lark. It's a very, very common chronotype. So – uh, so I go. So I naturally go to sleep relatively early and wake up relatively early. But I'm not one of these people who, you know, goes to sleep naturally falls asleep at say 8:30 in the evening and wakes up at 4:30 in the morning, or even you know 9:30 in the evening and 5:30. Or someone who, you know, goes to sleep at you know 11 and wakes up at sevens. How many times throughout someone's life does this change? I have to assume there. I mean, I'm thinking back to my high school days. I would sleep till noon. Where now, I totally. I, I can't remember the last time I slept past eight. Totally, totally, totally. That and that's such a good point, and and it's really important to 
it is, it is, I mean, what you're saying is so astute because it, it says, you know, we're, we're all not the same when it comes to these proclivities. And one way that we differ is, is, is through age. And, and essentially what we know is this, uh, that in general, kids say 10 and under are pretty larky. You know, they get up early, go to sleep early. Um, but around the mid teens, most people, uh, have a massive, significant, if not massive shift toward litmus. It is naturally wake up much later and go to sleep much later. And that period of intense owliness lasts until about the mid twenties. Now, for some people that's, that endures, that is, they stay fairly owly the rest of their life. But most of us, you know, have this intense, like you have this intense, this sort of increased owliness period between say the mid teens and the mid twenties, and then gradually return to some degree of you know, moderateness or, 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 or larkiness. But, you know, the teenagers in, in our lives who are groggy at seven o'clock in the morning, who say, I can't go to sleep before 1130. They're not lazy. They're not shiftless. They're not addicted to screens. That's not, that doesn't explain it. They are teenagers and teenagers have a very different chronotype. The, the policy implications for this are huge because um, schools for teenagers, you know, late middle school, high school, uh, starts way too early. Um, and uh, most scientists, and, and forget about scientists, let's talk about doctors, pediatricians. So I mean, pe the pediatricians of America have been imploring school districts around the United States for years to s not start school so early for teenagers. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has said that no American late middle school or high school should start before 8.30 in the morning, but most schools continue to violate that. Yeah, I feel like every day, though, we are seeing new schools, new districts adopt the policies that it almost seems you're an advocate for. So it's very cool. Yeah, there, there are. There are. It's a, it's a good point. Ever so slowly, there, there, has been some, there has been some pushback to this. And so some districts, you're absolutely right, some districts are changing. And what you see in the research on the districts that have changed, it's actually very beneficial. I mean, what you see is you see in the districts that have changed overall, you see lower dropout rates, you see higher test scores, uh, you see less teen depression. Uh, there's even some interesting research from some jurisdictions in the Western United States uh, that showed a decline in teen auto accidents when school was pushed back to start later in the day. And we're not talking like, we're not going crazy here. We're talking about starting school at nine or nine 15. We're not talking about you know, everybody rolling in at 1130. Yeah, that was some of the most remarkable things I uncovered doing research for this. And these changes weren't drastic or huge. And it's funny, you mentioned that this is a slow process. Well, I know you're based in DC. So you're used to things moving rather slow right there. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a tough problem to solve um, politically. And it, but but scientifically, it's not a close call. I mean, you know, there is not I mean, you you'll find almost no you know, the entire pediatrics profession has said, issued a policy statement saying, you know, don't start school for teenagers before 830. Uh, the trouble is, is that is that that is that deviation from the status quo is often inconvenient for adults. It's inconvenient for uh, teachers sometimes who like getting the day over with quickly, uh, perhaps so they can get home to their own kids. It is inconvenient for um, superintendents in many cases because it changes the bus schedules. 
Uh, it is inconvenient for some parents who like dropping off all their kids at one time so they can get to work. It is inconvenient for athletic coaches who want kids out of school by 2.30 or 3 so they can have practice in the afternoons. Uh, but um, it's wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. I know the listeners are going to want to do a little bit more research. I'll try to link up some of the things I came across while doing research in this. But I want I want to circle back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago about unnatural units of time. And are there certain unnatural units of time that you've restructured in your own way to be more beneficial for you? Um, not necessarily. I mean, because again, we need to have units of time in order to make sense of time. Like time is such an elusive concept when you start talking about it in terms of physics or philosophy or all of that. But in just in terms of like, you know, moment to moment, we need to be able to wrestle it down. You and I would not have been able to schedule this interview had there not been some rough consensus on unit time and all that. We, you couldn't, you know, if, if, if let's, let's say we didn't have a commonly held set of units of time, there's no way you could say, um, um, okay, we're going to talk at 2 PM. Well, what does that mean? You know, and, and for a long time in human civilization, there were not clocks. Clocks are a relatively recent invention. And then, um, in, at, at a certain point, the clocks, but the time in one city and the time in another city were not the same. So there could, and so eventually, as things got knitted together, in part by railroads and whatnot, railroads had a big effect on the standardization of time. Um, you know, we we did reach a we did reach a consensus on that. So I don't want to, you know, the standardization of time and units of time. They're they're generally a good thing. Um, for me, the the bigger insight of like the, on units of time were at essentially periods of time. And so, going back to what we were talking about earlier our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day. And one of the things that we know is that in general, most people move through the day in three broad stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Uh, and for most people, the peak is, um, 80% of us, the peak is in the morning. And so, uh, that's when we're and and the key characteristic of the peak is that's when we are most vigilant. That's when we are able to bat away distractions. And so that makes the peak the best time for doing certain kinds of analytic work, work that requires undistractability, less distractibility, work that um, uh, requires kind of heads down and focus. So even, to, I mean, today is a good example of it. So today, if you look at how I configured my day, um, I have, um, uh, so I have a, a writing assignment. And so uh, I did not do anything. So this morning I wrote because I, because I'm at my peak is in the morning. And so I cleared out the day. I did not open my, uh, I, I checked my email, even just even looked at my email only on short breaks in the, in the, in the morning because I had a, I had to write something and then I scheduled everything else for, for later in the day. Um, and so for me, the big insight was that you know, you should do certain kinds of work during your peak period, during the trough period, which can be a, which is early to mid afternoon. There are big decrements in performance uh, in many, many areas from standardized testing to healthcare to jury and judicial decision making. There's some things we can do to prevent that. And then um, and then later in the day, we have what's called, a, again, 80 percent of us, uh, what I like to call a recovery period where our vigilance is down, but our mood is back up. We're slightly less, we're slightly more disinhibited, 
And as a consequence, we can do certain kinds of cognitive tasks that require greater mental looseness. So coming up with, you know, non-obvious solutions to problems or brainstorming or iterating new ideas. Now, that said, um, this peak trough recovery applies to most of us in that order. But for people who have these evening chronotypes we were talking about before, night owls, uh, they tend to reach their peak much, 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 much later in the day, you know, early evening, mid evening, well into the evening. Um, and so the, the, the personal task here is, is less to think about particular units of time and more to think about these three broad stages and do your analytic work in the peak, some of your administrative work in the trough and do your insight work in the recovery. Yeah, so if you're if you're wondering why this interview sucks, we're not at the peak, we're not at recovery yet. <laughs> we are in that trough right now. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Is this actually an okay time to do things such as interviews like this? It's not ideal, but there are ways around it. And it's and again, I mean, and and I recognize that before we came into the interview. So here's what I'll give you an example of this. So I, you know, I knew this interview was scheduled at two o'clock, and I knew that I had to write all morning. And so what I did right before this interview was, um, in fact, you might have noticed that when you called me via Skype, I didn't pick up right away. And the reason for that was that I was just getting back into my office. Um, and so what I, what I had done was I took a, before this interview, I took a short walk, very short walk, you know, uh, but, but, but I went out, it's a sunny day here where I live in Washington, DC, sunny day, it's a little cold, but it's reasonably nice outside. And so I, I took a very short walk and I had a cup of coffee knowing that left to my own devices is going to be a suboptimal time of day to have a conversation with you. You mentioned a cup of coffee. Something you wrote about is the old Nappuccino. Can, can you yeah. expand upon this? I love this concept. Yeah, I did not do that. I did not have a Nappuccino, <laughs> but, but, uh, this goes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a type of nap. And what we know about naps is that naps can be extremely effective in restoring mental acuity in sort of replenishing our mental energy. However, um, there's a certain kind of nap that is ideal. The best, the very, the most effective naps are extremely short, really short, shorter than I would have imagined would be useful. Naps between say 10 and 20 minutes long. Shorter than that, shorter than 10 minutes, you don't get much benefit. Longer than 20 minutes, you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get from when you emerge from, from a nap. But naps between 10 minutes and 20 minutes are really ideal. You get the greatest bang for the buck. And one way to intensify that is to have a cup of coffee right beforehand, because it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to get into your bloodstream. So you can take it. You know, so what you could do is you could have a cup of coffee. And this is what I do. Have a cup of coffee, uh, sit in a chair, close your eyes and set your alarm for 25 minutes. And, you know, let's say that it takes you 15 minutes to fall asleep. Um, and you wake up after 20, let's say it takes you 12 minutes to fall asleep and you wake up after 25 minutes. Um, you have, you know, thir a 13 minute nap, which is right in that sweet spot. And then when you wake up, you get an added boost of caffeine from that cup of coffee that you had 25 minutes earlier. What's in uh, Professor Pink's cup? You espresso kind of guy, regular coffee? What is it? I am, I don't drink the fancy drinks. I'm, I'm, a, I'm pure, I am, I'm pure drip coffee. <laughs> there you go. Nothing fancy. 
nothing fancy for me. I don't have the lattes or the cappuccinos or the blah, blah, blahs. I am pure drip coffee. Well, you mentioned you went for a walk. That is something I swear by. I do it every single day. It clears up my thinking. Uh, it lets me connect with those around me better. A lot of historical biographies I've read, it seems like a lot of the change makers have gone on long walks. Have you looked mm. into this research at all? I, I have. Well, I, I've looked into the research on break. It's an interesting idea. Like if, if there were a way to look at, say, a sample, a, a very large sample of historic figures and to see if there's a way to determine if a disproportionate number of them took walks, you know, so that ordinary people, you know, X percent of them took regular walks. But among high achievers, you know, three X percent of them took took walks. That would be that would be kind of interesting. Uh, the, I don't know. It could be true. The the research on breaks though suggests that any kind of a break is pretty good for us. Uh, we don't take enough breaks, uh, but if you begin to go even further into this research on breaks, there are certain kinds of breaks that are most effective. And what we know from this research is that uh, breaks where you're moving are more restorative than breaks where you are stationary. We know that breaks outside are more effective than breaks that are inside. We know that breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on your own, even for introverts. And so, you know, what you're designing there essentially is a walk, right? I mean, um, so if you go, you know, if you do you take your walks by yourself or with other people? Uh, so in the morning, I usually do it by myself. I'll try to do one in the evening as well with my wife and our son. Yeah. So, so, so what we know about, so, you know, in some ways, the, the ideal, an ideal break is to take a 15 minute walk outside with someone you like talking about something other than work and leaving your phone behind. That is in, in many ways, the platonic ideal of a, of an effective break. Interesting. Yeah. I shouldn't have worded it, the research around walking. Like, you know, I'm in the afternoon trough, so I misworded that one there, but that's very no, interesting. No, but, but, to hear no, but, but actually I, I'm saying that you could be, I, I'm saying that you could be right. I'm saying that there could be a disproportionate number of high achievers who are walkers. Um, that could very well be true. Um, and I, I mean, I'd love to be able to find that out. In, in your work as well, you have some unbelievable hair-raising examples of how timing can impact people at work. And one that really surprised me was around earning calls. Can you expand upon this? I think the listeners will love this one. Oh, my God. This is this is totally crazy. So this was a study of uh, at NYU of um, a very large number of earnings calls, somewhere around 25,000 earnings calls. And, you know, for the listeners who don't know, public companies have quarterly, most, almost all public companies have quarterly report, you know, here's what we earned last quarter, here's what we earned next quarter, um, you know, here, here's what's going right, here's what's going wrong. And they have these calls with journalists and analysts who follow the stock and then advise their usually institutional clients whether to, you know, buy more of the stock or sell it or hold it. And so these calls are pretty high stakes because after the call, and the company's reporting earnings, you know, stock prices can go up or down in fairly significant ways. And so this is a study of these of these calls. And what the researchers did is they used the transcripts of these calls and they fed them into a program that's essentially a giant text analyzer. Um, and and what they were looking for was the emotional level of the words that were used. And what they found is that afternoon calls, calls in the afternoon were more negative, irritable, and combative than calls in the morning. Um, and so they said, well, wait a second, that, that, that could be true, but maybe there's an explanation for that. Maybe that companies with good earnings report early and companies with crappy earnings report late. And so they control for that. And the pattern still held that afternoon calls based on the parsing of this, the language from the transcripts of 26, 25,000 calls 
uh, showed that afternoon calls were much more negative, combative than morning calls to the point where it had a short-term effect on the price. Uh, and so if we think about this, it's it's actually, I'm, I'm with you, it's it's totally remarkable because you know, you've got, you know, think about a typical company earnings call. You have the CEO and CFO of a public company, generally reasonably competent people. I mean, not necessarily geniuses, but they're competent. Uh, you, they are extremely well prepared. There's a whole apparatus that prepares these executives for these conference calls, giving them talking points and anticipating questions and squadrons of researchers at the ready to ferret out any facts that might not be immediately at the fingertips of these executives. Uh, and these executives have a huge amount at stake in these calls because their own compensation uh, can go up or down based on what they what, what they say and how they say it. And yet, um, these these patterns, this hidden pattern in the day, is so powerful that um, it's they, they can't arrest it. And so these this this paper from NYU even says that. Uh, corporate communication should be done much more in the morning rather than in the afternoon to avoid some of this effect. Yeah, what, I, what I'm doing the next month is every single earnings call that's going on in the afternoon, I'm actually shorting that stock. So I'll report <laughs> back to you. So, yeah. so if I uh, lose yeah. it all, I can thank you very much. Yeah, I would just, I would just make sure you do it over a, um, I would make sure you do it over a large number of stocks. That's all I'm saying. Because I, I think, it, yeah, so, so making a bet on one stock is... Um, is always risky. But if you do it over a large number of stocks, I'm convinced that someone has figured this out and is making money off of it. Well, we'll skip over the money for a second. I mean, there are some life and death consequences in, in other professions here and in the medical field specifically. And this is the last one I want to hit on with you, but vigilance breaks at the University of Michigan Medical Center. Do you remember this bit of research? Yeah. I mean, can you expand upon this? I, I'm just absolutely blown away of how impactful this is. Well, what, what we know is that there's a problem in, in hospital performance, um, uh, or not even hospitals, it's all throughout the medical system, where performance is different at different times of day, and the afternoons end up being a fairly perilous time. There are big, you know, pretty significant changes in things like anesthesia errors. Uh, uh, doctors are likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics in afternoon exams versus morning exams, hand washing in hospitals. Uh, decreases considerably. Um, you know, medical, er- you know, other kinds of medical errors rise in 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 the afternoon. And uh, a remedy for that is so. so a, a remedy for that is giving the doctors more and systematic breaks. And so there's a certain kind of a break. It's a vigilance break where I, I call it a vigilance break where you're essentially. And I sat in on or stood in on a surgery at Michigan University of Michigan Medical Center a couple of years ago when I was doing this research where, you know, they were about to operate on a patient, but before they did it, everybody, you know, they call a timeout, they take a step back and they review a checklist and they make sure that there are ways to arrest the, you know, prevent this error from happening in the afternoon. But we also know that, again, uh, other kinds of breaks are also effective in medical settings. So, uh, again, there's a good paper on hand washing in hospitals showing as I said before, that hand washing in hospitals, which is the first line of defense against hospital acquired infections, just plummets in the afternoon. And it's very dangerous. And so one way that researchers have found to get that level of hand washing a little bit back up is to give the nurses more breaks and particularly social breaks, that when nurses have more breaks, breaks with other nurses, that the incidence of hand washing actually goes, goes, um, goes up rather than uh, you know, is is at least higher than it was um, when they're they don't have those kinds of breaks. 
all this stuff I'm truly fascinated by. And the unbelievable thing too is, is the impact this research has. And and when is a book I really did love, but another one of your works came out in 2009 was Drive. And I'm obsessed with both these books. I know Thanks. we don't have much time to uncover Drive, but I would just love talking for a second, the differences between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and kind of just broad themes you uncovered there. Yeah. So, so part of the idea in that book is, is this difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So intrinsic motivation is you're doing something because you decide to do it. You want to do it. We talked about this a little bit earlier with motivational interviewing. So it's basically behavior that is self-determined, um, and autonomous rather than other determined and controlled. And so extrinsic motivator is when you're doing something for outside reasons. So you're doing it to uh, avoid getting punished. You're doing it to get a reward. And, uh, and even though this research is complicated, one of the things that it tells us is that I guess the biggest idea in this book is that you know, organizations use a whole array of rewards, but one of the most important ones they use is what psychologists call a controlling contingent reward. Uh, and I, I don't like that phrase. I like to call it an if then reward. Uh, so if then rewards are rewards where someone says, if you do this, then you get that. And what the research tells us is that if then rewards are, are effective for simple tasks with short time horizons, they work pretty well because human beings love rewards and you dangle a reward in front, in front of somebody, they're going to focus narrowly and they are going, you know, they're going to look at a problem narrowly and they're going to, and if they know what they need to do and how to get there, they're going to do it a little bit better. However, uh, the same body of research tells us that if then rewards are far less effective for work that requires more judgment, discernment, creativity, conceptual thinking, because for that kind of work, you want to have a much more expansive view. And if then rewards narrow our field of vision rather than widen it. And so what, what we've got is this world, especially in business, that is operating based on very outdated notions of what motivates people to do great work. Uh, notions based on uh, and at some level based on an old economic system, but also running counter to what 50 years of science tells us about what really leads to enduring performance on, on more complex tasks. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I, I'm not ideologically opposed to using if then rewards in organizations, but they should be used only for the category of tasks for which they're effective, which, I, which as I said before, are Things that are relatively simple, straightforward, routine, algorithmic, uh, and that have a relatively short journey to the finish line. But for more complex tasks, as I said, you know, if you're trying to come up with a new idea, you're trying to iterate something, you're trying to do creative work, conceptual work, you're solving a non-obvious problem, or you have a finish line that is way, way, way far away, these if-then rewards just aren't very effective. Yeah, that's one of those those books where every time I read it, I uncover something new. And and your TED talk you did back in two thousand nine, which is unbelievable. I'll link that up. That that gives you a bit of a preview in what you hit on there. And do you have any idea how many views your TED talk has? I've I had it pulled up this morning. So, um, it I, I've been lucky in that it hit at the right time. So <laughs> it's you know somewhere around you know it's very very high. I mean it's like eighteen million or something like that. Yeah, I think it was just over. 22 million as of this oh, morning. Okay, cool. So congrats right. to you. You're, you're having quite an yeah, impact thanks. there. I am interested. Did you ever take improv classes or anything along the lines of acting? Uh, no, it's interesting you say that because it's something I've always wanted to do. I did do, uh, uh, I did sit in on an improv class once for, 
uh, just for one session for a book that I wrote uh, called To Sell as Human. But uh, acting in improv is, is something that I've always wanted to do. I think you're very funny, hence why I hey, asked thanks. that. Thanks yeah, a lot. No, I mean, thanks. have you have you always been this witty? No, I have no idea. I mean, I'm, you're you're kind to say that that you're you're kind to say that you think it was it was funny. I'm I'm um, I'm just trying to get through the day, man. I'm just you know trying yeah, no, to tell. I, the, I didn't mean to trying just, to tell the truth, trying to tell the truth and get through the day. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to just bring this up, but I mean, you really, I I think it helps add to to your ability to tell story, and that's a reoccurring theme here on this podcast. So I just had no idea if that's yeah. Something- no, I, I do think that. I mean, here's the thing. I, I I do think that 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 humor can be an effective way to transmit ideas. Um, and um, and you know, I'm not sure that I necessarily do it like like consciously and strategically, but I, I do think that when you talk about ideas and you, and you're trying to convey ideas to people, you want to put it in as, um, you know, you know, not, not dumbed down, but you want to make it as simple as possible. And you're looking for ways to make it memorable. And one of the things that we know is that humor is, you know, when you say something funny or say something in a funny way, it's often more memorable than if you just say it in a straight, stiff, dour way. Yeah, you mentioned ideas, and I'm really interested in your idea generation. We we talked about how your book came to be. What is your actual practice like for coming up with new ideas around story and and the future works for yourself? Um, I do a bunch of different things. Um, you know, again, let me start with my philosophy. My philosophy on this is that in order to have a good idea, you have to have a lot of ideas. Uh, I, I think that that idea with ideas, quantity leads to quality. And so, so I have a lot of really bad ideas, a lot of really crappy, shitty ideas. Um, and so what you, and, and what I try to do though, is I try to capture all of them. I try not to evaluate them too much, but try to capture all of them. So what I do is, and I'm fairly analog about this. So I often almost always have a notebook with me. Um, and you know, late, you know, since the advent of the smartphone, I also will take pictures of things. And I have massive files, uh, paper files, um, for like ideas that I'm thinking about. Um, I also have massive, uh, like if, if drop, if, if, uh, if, uh, if terrorists ever attacked the Dropbox, I would be done as a human being. <laughs> Everything I have is in, is stored in Dropbox. So I have idea files in Dropbox. And what I do is, is I try to maybe every six months or so cull through some of the ideas. Um, uh, and, you know, as I said before, a lot of them turn out to be crappy. And so I get rid of those. And but what I found over the over time is that many, many times certain ideas will continue to stay on the list. And that to me, that's a that's a that's a signal that there's a there's a there that. And so, and so, and so I, so I will, for, for longer projects, I will, um, pay careful attention to things like, what, wait a second. I came up with that like one afternoon four years ago. And each time, every six months when I've gone back to get rid of the bad ideas, that one has stuck up, stuck around. Hmm. Maybe there's a there there. Do you have any structure? You mentioned you always have the notebook with you. Is it just this random idea pops in your head and you're just jotting down a few words or is there a specific format you put it down in? No, no, it's, 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 it's just exactly the first thing that you said, literally sometimes scribbling down a four word, scribbling down four words, or in the old days, what I would often do is, you know, I'd be reading a magazine or a newspaper, physical magazine or a newspaper. And I would, I would like 
rip it out of the magazine or the newspaper and, you know, file it away. I still do that sometimes. Uh, a lot of times now I take pictures of things. So I'll take pictures of a, um, I mean, literally, like I'll take pictures of a sentence in a, in a, in a newspaper article that I'm reading and, or I'll take pictures of a sign I see while traveling, or I'll take pictures of a placard in an art museum I'm visiting. And, um, even though I don't know exactly what that idea is, like, I think there's something, there, there could be something there. And so I just put it into a system of idea collection that I then will review, you know, somewhat systematically over time. So I'm not super, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm more organized than I really am, but I'm, I'm reasonably organized. I also use, um, um, I sort of have, I've had an on again, off again relationship with Evernote because I have, I've used it a lot. And then sometimes I sort of fall off the Evernote wagon and don't use it for a few months. So I've sort of, it's weird. Um, but I, but I like, I don't, I, I like Evernote. It just, it's just in terms of like the day-to-dayness, sometimes I find myself not using it for a couple of months and then I use it and then I'm using it every day and then I fall off. So that's just another way to collect, um, uh, you know, it's just another way to collect things. Yeah. When you're collecting these ideas, are they solely ideas around potential new books for yourself? No, it could be articles. It could be TV shows. It could be things that I don't even know, like what it is. It's just like, Hey, that's kind of interesting. Oh, cool. I know. I, I love the framework too around. It's about amassing a lot of different ideas because you will be able to find some good ones out of all of those bad ones. When you're thinking about a new book, a new article, a TV show, are you visualizing it like a story in your head or, or how does that come to be for you? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. Uh, I think, I think it varies. Um, for me, yeah, I think it varies. And I don't want to suggest that my experience is a universal experience or the ideal way to do it at all. It's just like, it's just my way to do it. And I think people have to discover the way that they do that. For me, um, I often actually have to write stuff to figure it out. So it's not as if, uh, you know, there's some people who will have say an idea, let's just say for something fairly mundane. All right. Let's just say something fairly mundane, like an article. I don't want to say that's mundane because all writing is hard and difficult and challenging, but let's say it's, you know, I have an article, let's say I have an idea for a, like a, a short opinion piece. All right. Let's talk, let's talk about that. There are some people who will be say, I know what my idea is. And they would just essentially sit down for an hour and write it down. Okay. I don't work that way. For me, I will have an idea in my head, but it won't be fully formed. And the way to make it fully formed is to sit down and write, even if I don't know precisely at that moment exactly what I'm going to say, that I can, that I will, I will use the writing process to figure out what I think. That is so interesting. I, I know we just have a few minutes left. I just have a couple quick questions sure. for you. What's the most unique thing someone did to leave an impression on you? Oh, boy. Um, you know what? I, I don't know. That's a great question. I'd, I'd have to think about that for, for, for longer. I, I'll, I'll just give you the, the first thing that comes to mind. What always lingers with me is when I see people act with kindness when they don't have to be kind, when there's nothing in it for them. So it could be just um, people who, like some people who will walk down a street and see someone, say, who looks like, you know, maybe living on the street or in pretty bad shape or some kind of mental illness, and they will stop and just talk to that person. That, that always lingers with me. People who are just, who just 
are kind and, and engage in acts of kindness. That, that, that lingers with me more than anything else. It's interesting. That's how you phrased your response there, because my next question was actually going to be, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Seriously? Yeah. I can show oh. you my show notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, boy, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, I feel like throughout my life, there have been some people who have given me a chance to do something when maybe I didn't deserve a chance as much as other people or as much as I ought to have. Um, so I think that that could be, uh, I think that could be part of it. Um, you know, I, I think another way to think about that question is as human beings, we, we, we don't like to talk about randomness and luck in our own lives. And because we feel like it somehow undermines our accomplishments or achievements or value or intelligence or whatnot, but I think it's important to do. So, you know, I, I guess the luck, you know, at some level, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me was that I was born in the 20th century in the United States of America to two parents who had college educations. Like that's basically winning the birth lottery right there. And so I'm not sure that was an act of kindness on the part of the universe, but it was certainly extraordinarily lucky for me. Yeah, no, incredible answer. Uh, it, it's just so interesting hearing how you articulate these things. I'd love to know, are you working on any new books for the I'm near future? I'm trying to figure that out right now, actually. So your, your, <laughs> so your questions about like idea generation and, and evaluation are really, really interesting to me. Uh, you know, and again, I have, yeah, I, I have a history of writing book proposals and throwing them out or uh, proposing ideas that nobody likes or so, so I'm on, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm playing around with a bunch of different things. Great. Well, we'll have to get you back on when you do. you mentioned luck a second ago. Is there any books that you think we should pick up based on luck? Hmm. Uh, actually, yes, yes. And no. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, you could, you could put it in your show notes. I, I wrote a story for Fast Company maybe 10 or 12 years ago about a guy named Richard Weissman. At, he's a professor at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK who has done some research on luck. Uh, and so I, they tried to synthesize some of what he found. I think that's pretty good. Um, just introduction to some of that stuff. And I, I also really like, um, oh yeah, a couple books, yeah. So I, I really like uh, Annie Duke's book called Thinking in Bets which is about, you know, probabilistic thinking and like what is random and what is not and what, you know, uh, you know, what causes things and what doesn't cause things and, um, you know, uh, and decision-making and the fact that something turned out well, doesn't mean that you made a good decision. That's a good one. Uh, the success equation by Michael Mabusian, um, is a really, really interesting book. Um, and it's about sports. So it's a double win. It's a double win. Uh, it looks at various kinds of sports and talks about how much, is luck a factor in these sports? And it turns out that say something like basketball requires, what's the balance between talent and luck in many endeavors? And so you look at sort of sports, it turns out that that baseball is a little bit, is, is more luck driven and basketball is, is more talent driven. Fantastic. I know you've got to get going, Daniel Pink. I cannot thank you enough. Where can the listeners continue to support you and follow your work? Well, I've got a website, uh, danpink.com or danielpink.com. And I also have a newsletter, um, that goes out uh, every other week. We're on a little bit of a hiatus right now as I'm collecting some material and producing some material, but uh, it's free and keeps people up to date on what I'm, you know, some of the things I'm thinking about, some of the things I'm doing. 
Yeah, and then check the show notes for the TED Talk. And also, I love your pink cast, the 90-second videos. Those are great. So I hope you keep producing those. But Daniel- Yeah, we, we, have, we, have, four, we have four new ones in the can right now that we're, we're ready to get out. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to Globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.